One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is episode 68. We're recording this within 11 hours of that penalty shootout happening. <laughs> I don't know about you, Andrew. My head is not quite as clear as it could be, but it's far clearer yes. than if we'd won the thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh, if we if we are lucid in any way at all today, it's because England lost. Yeah. So thank you, <laughs> thank yeah. you, chaps. That was, you've done us a big favour there. Um, okay, we've got lots to get through uh, in this episode of the podcast. It, yeah. It's a Monday. It's the Monday after the Festival of Speed. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of news, new cars. We've driven. A couple of important new cars in the last few days as well. Yeah, we could actually sit here for hours if we wanted to, but we're not going to. We're going to try and rattle through everything in forty minutes or so. Um, so, where do you want to start? Actually, no. Before we do get started, yeah, um, there was a TI Super podcast that went up on the app recently. It's an interview that I did with two of our contributors, Colin yeah. Goodwin and Joanna Fidalgo. Yeah. Um, now, the idea, this was actually Colin's idea, because in her first piece, Jo wrote um, about the 90s. She said that, as far as she's concerned, that was a golden age yeah. for the performance car. Yeah, and completely wrong. Sorry. <laughs> and Colin rang me up and said, arrange an interview between the three of us. I yeah. want to talk to Jo about this idea of hers, because he completely agreed. Yeah. Um, and so we sat down. He's completely wrong, too. And we sat down for half an hour or something. Um, and Joe explained from a, an engineering point of view yeah. and from a manufacturer's point of view why she thought the 90s was this, this yeah. great age. Yeah. Um, and she works, she's a powertrain engineer for JLR, so she's got some insight into all this yeah, stuff yeah. that we don't have. So she gives some quite grown-up reasons for why she loves that era, yeah. the cars from that era. Colin... Um, not a grown-up. Not a grown-up at all. <laughs> but... He he drove all the cars through the nineties, but he also had he had he has contacts that Joe and I don't have. We're a bit younger, yeah. Um, so he you know he's he lived through the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, into the noughties, and up till now. Um, and so he can compare and contrast the different yeah. eras, yeah. Um, so I'm just going to play a few minutes of that now. I think for me, and, and coming from a bit of an, an engineering background, um, the nineties were very a very interesting period in terms of. Um, 
it's almost like a balance. So you start getting more regulations coming into the cars, um, mainly coming from Japan. There's a lot of regulations around um, fuel efficiency. So that was almost a trigger to bring new um, technology to the market, to develop different engines, to make do something different. Uh, you see from the 80s to the 90s, there was, there was a big shift to more sleek designs. So you got like all the, the cars that look like wedges. You had like beautiful lines like the RX-7, the NSX, because you were trying to look for that efficiency um, and lowering the drag. But then at the same time, you didn't have the case that we've got today. We've got so many regulations that it almost hinders the the engineering development. It almost puts everyone in the same box because everything is so strict that almost all the OEMs come up with the same answer. And I think that was quite an interesting time because it was, as I said, we're starting some regulations. So people are having to think a little bit outside of the box, but you're not completely bound by not being able to do anything different. And um, I also think it was a very interesting time around people finding their expression through cars. So there was an explosion around people tuning the cars and modifying the cars. You had best motoring, um, mainly the hot version with all the tuned cars. You had uh, the birth of max power. Um, so it's almost like a, an expression of, of people finding a, more ways to expressing themselves through, um, through cars. And then you get to the 2000s and you start getting things like, as, as you mentioned, uh, electric power steering. And um, then you start getting more end cap regulations around pedestrian safety. You lose the pop-up headlights, rest in peace. And um, it kind of starts changing that environment again. And I think that's kind of when probably more around towards the, the end of the 2010s, as you mentioned, things start getting a bit more watered down with the technology. So I think the, the 90s, early 2000s, almost like that sweet spot right there. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I suspect it's true of you as well. I wasn't driving in the 90s. Um, I was early 2000s or mid 2000s. I think I started driving. So I was well aware of cars um, as a car crazed kid throughout the 90s, but. I wasn't really tuned into what all the latest goings on were. You know, I didn't have any context, as it were. I didn't, I didn't really live through the 70s or the 80s. So, Colin, can you give us some context? You, you were a car journalist in the 90s. Um, do you recognise what Joe's been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And um, what really um, made my ears prick up, or my eyes open, when I read um, Joe's piece about her E46... Uh, I think the great fear is when you're of my generation is the the dreaded nostalgia and rose-tinted spectacles come in. And what what sort of era do we expect, what age do we get the nostalgia for? Uh, yeah. And if it's sort of from your childhood, then the 90s weren't my childhood. Um you know, I was in my sort of late twenties in in ninety. So it was really great to read what Joe said because I'm I'm sort of thinking, thank God for that. I'm not uh, 
I'm not blinded to this. I'm not the only uh, person who thinks this way. And, and it's not just Joe. I've heard, you know, lots of colleagues who are, you know, far younger than me. And if you look at them on Twitter uh, and social media, they're very interested in that era of car. Mm. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think 1994, 95 was not just the best, period recently i think it's the best period in the history of the car they explain why they think the 90s was a great age for the performance car you clearly think it wasn't the 90s at all. well no, i'm being a bit flip i'm all i'm trying to do is is sort of uh is, is find a slightly cheesy way of sort of saying into um a piece i did on the app oh. <laughs> in the last week about 1971 uh, which very sadly is a year that i can actually remember i no. was i turned six in 1971 um and it's just it's always just struck me as being the most extraordinary year because it is... I mean, people, I think people think in 1971 in terms of all the amazing music that came out. It was like the year after the Beatles stopped and all the, big, the other big bands of the time, you know, the sort of the Stones and the Who and, and all that. Lot, they just all started doing hmm. what I think most people think was probably their best work. But in car terms too, in one year, we saw the Lamborghini Countach, we saw the Ferrari Bernaletta Boxer, we saw the Maserati Bora and the Lancia Stratos. Okay, so... I actually do understand why Colin and Joe think the 1990s are the way they are, and I'm not disagreeing with them that much. But if, like me, you were just brought up on a diet of Italian supercars, if they mm. were just all the things that were all on your bedroom wall, um, I mean, it just always struck me as extraordinary that in that one year, between it was all between the Geneva show in March and the Turin show in November of that year, um, four of the most, and I know it's one of the most overused words um, certainly in motoring journalism, but nevertheless, I think, certainly for the boxer on the Countach, for the most iconic yeah. supercars. And the influence, yeah. uh, particularly in terms of design, um, that they had, and these were all mid-engine cars, so they, were, you know, they weren't quite the earliest mid-engine supercars, but you know, basically, after that, everything changed. And uh, I, was, I was wandering along the Goodwood lawn at the Cartier Stile Lux mm. on Friday morning when I first got uh, in yes. there. Yeah. And once I'd stopped drooling over the 2CV that was there, quite rightly, um, <laughs> there was in front of me, there was a Boxer and there was a Countach and there was a Bora and there was a Stratos. And this was long after I'd written it. So it wasn't like I saw it and then wrote this stuff. No. I'd written all the stuff and then I went to Goodwood and there it all was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I looked at it all I knew and I was, just, I was just that kid again. It was just, just amazing to see those cars and just mm. how... A, different the design is. Look at a Boxer, look at a Countach. Or we look at a Bora and look at a Countach. Mm. There are such different yeah. ways of doing it. And you can almost see the characters of their creators, the Pinaferinas and the Gijaros and mm. the Gandinis, um, in these, in these, what are to me, works of art. Yeah. And that's right. They came from great design houses. They do. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing, and it's, it's 50 years ago, so now's yeah. the time to, to celebrate Hence these cars again. me banging on about it, yeah. Yeah, um, I suppose, yeah, the timing is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the mid-engine configuration was sort of proven in the preceding years, wasn't it? And a then, little bit, yeah, it started with the Mura and yeah. the, then the Dino and things like that, but that's when it really got... Really got going. Yeah. Yeah, and then these four poster cars yeah. all arrived at the same time. Just imagine how exciting that year was. It's great, isn't it? That's very cool. I mean, yeah, yeah, okay, so they didn't all, that was when they first seen it. It certainly took the Ferrari and the Lamborghini a couple of years to 
to make it into production and the Lancia 2 and probably the Bora I'm not sure but mm. that's when we first became aware of these things yeah mega cars well you did write about 1971 for the app I that's did. on there now let's just rattle through a couple of the other things that have been on the app recently um, so today as we're recording this the second part of Henry's yep Original Trinity Trilogy. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> that was good. With a hangover as well. Original Trinity Trilogy. That was okay, wasn't it? Um, so he's writing about the Mercedes CLK GTR, yeah. the Porsche 911 GT1 and McLaren F1. Yeah. He drove all three back to back. Yeah. And I did ask him when I last saw him, had anybody ever done that before? Because I just kind of presumed that um, that must be, because mm. I've never seen that before. No. And he says, you can't say for certain but DK Engineering, who provided mm. the car, uh, are pretty confident it has never happened before. Those cars have never been together Amazing, on the same bit of road. Not even in period. Not even not in even period. No, when no, no I don't think. I don't think it. And I think I'd probably have remembered that. Mm. Um, yeah. So it really is a. Can I say unique? I probably can. Um, thing that mm. he managed to go and do. It's very special. Yeah, yeah. fair play to him. Lucky boy. Um, so he in the, this the, the second part um, he concentrates on the 911 GT1 yeah um, and we've got one more part to come where he'll write about the McLaren yeah. F1 I think we're all looking forward to that yeah. um, well, but what is great about the way that he does it and I know that we're plugging our own product here but genuinely as a motoring writer one of the very difficult things to do if you're doing something like that is to keep all three kind of in in focus and in frame at the same time because you'll be start writing about one and you know and you need mm. to finish about that and then you, and, and it's quite easy to get quite processional you know I'll write about the Mercedes and then I'll write about my client then I'll write about the, and what Henry does so well is he will focus on one particular car in this particular part of the story but it will always be framed in terms of the others so the other two are always coming in so it's not like you're reading three individual single tests you're reading the proper group tests of all three cars yep. but just the way that he just manages to focus on one through the almost through the the prism of the others, I just think is um, it's really skillful. Very skillfully done. Um, we've also in the last week or so posted the latest from David Tuig, our engineer, yeah. um, and he. I mean, this was he starts saying Andrew Frankel is a naughty man, doesn't he, or something? Right. <laughs> so I, I have this, and I, and I still don't believe him. Um, David maintains that basically designers and engineers. Yeah. Um, all have lived in this wonderfully sort of harmonious life and they always agree with each other. Whereas I know that actually what they're trying to do are diametrically opposed things. You know, engineers want things to be um, light and precise and, you know, aerodynamic and designers just want massive wheels and they mm. want things to look really cool. And, you know, I, I just, I've always just envisaged these massive boardroom punch-ups so I just said to David, tell us about it. And, and he's, he's being loyal. I mean, so, so, so what, but what he has done, he has identified an area which does create some stress, which is that bit between the top of the tyre and the bottom of the wheel arch. Uh, and he does explain both from an engineering point of view and from a design point of view um, why this tension mm. is created. Um, and I just haven't really thought about that. Mm. I haven't really thought about how that gap affects your spring rate mm. um, and how a designer... Um, wants a body to be as low as possible for that gap to be as small as possible and the engineers are going well hang on that just means the car will have no ride quality at all because its springs are going to be this tall um and it's david has an amazing way of talking about really complex engineering subjects in a way that even we can understand yeah i can which is remarkable (laughs) Yeah, he's very, very good at that yeah. stuff. He's not, he's not writing for engineers. No, he he understands that that's not his role. Uh, it's a good piece. 
Um, and the other one that I want to talk about is the Japanese XJR15. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm quite glad that we've chosen these pieces because they illustrate the breadth that we have in our contributors. Henry, um, one of the best established names in car journalism at the moment. David Tuig, who's not a journalist, but a very experienced... You wouldn't believe he wasn't a journalist. You so. wouldn't. He writes like one. Very experienced but, engineer. But, well, he writes better than, frankly... Yeah. <laughs> He does, yeah, he and, does. Yeah. Um, and then this Japanese XJR15 was written by a young lad called Charlie Martin. Yeah. Who, I don't know, is he 19 or 20 or something? I think he might have just scraped 21. 21. So yeah. he's a young guy yeah. hoping to get into the industry. Yeah. But he's, he's a good writer and he's, he finds interesting stories that yeah. actually I didn't know about. Yeah. And, and this that's is what I hope that the app will do, or does, and will continue to do, is it just tells people stuff they don't know. Exactly, um, and here this, I mean, and, and also it is so important to Dan and to I that because I mean certainly for me when I first started out in this business, um, there was no one trying to encourage young talent. There were no, there weren't any individual people. I mean, I luckily eventually found a bit of help with Autocar, um, but I always thought to myself, if I ever get to a position where I can mm. do something, even a tiny little thing, to help the next generation come through, then I, I kind of, sort of see it as, A, I want to do it, but B, I also think there's a kind of, um, you owe it mm. to your industry to try and, um, yeah. and, you know, we started with Yusuf Ashraf, who was a fantastic writer, and he got snapped up, and he's now in full-time employment uh, in the business, which makes it, despite the fact that we've actually lost a writer, um, it makes us really, really happy. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it seems strange to, say, you know, come and nick one of our writers. But, you know, if anybody, you know, editors of good publications listening to this, go and have a look at Charlie's stuff. And, you know, and just, you know, think about this, what that kind of brain, what that kind of talent could bring to, you know, because we can't offer these guys full-time employment. No, we, we can't offer them a story a month, which isn't much. But if we can just get them noticed a bit, mm. um, and this is a great story about literally a bunch of uni students mm in Tokyo who got hold of a Jaguar XJR15 and thought let's get a little more mm. and it's a great great story I don't want to sort of reveal all the details of it because it's all on the app and uh, I don't want to spoil it but yeah. yeah very pleased to have it it's a good piece yeah these young writers will one day have us out of a job won't they yeah any luck so, so be it um, okay well let's crack on then so what? since the, the last podcast um, the Lotus Amira has been revealed yeah and we've both seen it yeah um, I've sat in it yeah. I've done an interview with Matt Windle, the MD of Lotus Cars. Um, so that will go up as a TI Super Podcast on the app. TI Super Podcasts are for app subscribers only. Yep. Um, so it'll, it'll be up there very shortly. I think it looks sensational. I said to Matt, um, it must just help everybody in the business when Russell Carr and his design team do such good work. Yeah. It looks great, doesn't it? I think it does. I mean, and, and the thing, when I first saw it, I was up there. I was in Norfolk doing something else. I was driving, doesn't matter, another car. Um, and they literally said, oh, come and have a look at this. So mm. I was completely unprepared. And I hadn't mm. thought about it. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that's, that's an amazing looking car. And I thought, but it's brave because they've obviously decided to go, you know, after yeah. the sort of AMG GT, Junior McLaren 911 Turbo, mm. um, Aston Vantage type market. And, you know, this is going to be a 120 grand car. And then they said, it's going to cost 60 grand. Mm. And I just, wow. Me? Yeah. I mean, it looks like a yeah, it looks like a junior supercar, mm. but it's Porsche Cayman money. Mm. Yeah, they've done they've done very very well there. Um, yeah, less than it will start at less than sixty grand. It presumably it'll reach up to well Plenty. beyond eighty. Sure. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and, I, and I suspect that they will be, you know, they'll be being quite cute with, you know, what's standard and what isn't standard. Yeah. And so, but everybody plays that game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, but, 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 but the point is, isn't it, is that it's, you know, this is a mainstream product, which is going to hopefully sell by the thousands. And, and the anecdotal evidence I have heard, not from Lotus, but just from um, a few others, is that the reception to it has been absolutely extraordinary. And, yeah. and I think for anybody listening to that, uh, you know, people who have, you know, the last time there appeared to be news this good about Lotus was 1995 and the was coming out. Um, it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, not taking anything granted, you know, and, and we must stress absolutely that nobody's driven this car. We don't have any idea what it's actually like. Um, but we do know it's spec, we know what it looks like, and crucially, we know the people who have developed it. Mm. Um, so I think it's, you know, you'd have to say it's unlikely to be a duffer, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's a good bet that it's going to be you, but decent, you can't pre- but we don't you know. Can't, you can't prejudge it. We don't know. No. Um, yeah, you wrote in your piece uh, on Instagram and on the app that we can be confident it will drive well. We know the engines. We know it looks great. Yeah. Actually, it's usability, reliability, practicality. That's the stuff that matters. Again, we'll have to defer judgment on that, but I sat in the thing. Yeah. Um, it's got a great cabin. Crucially, it's got a door that opens and reveals a space that you can fit a body through. <laughs> you can actually get in and out of it. It's a breeze getting yeah. in and out. I yeah. was really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And you compare that to even a Navora, which is supposed to be their most usable car. Um, it's it's so much easier to get in and out of, and that will make a big difference to a lot of people. And this is the thing: people keep on going on about you know there's the, the, if it's if it's attracted any criticism at all, it's over it's over the weight of the car, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which I think is fourteen hundred and five kilos, but that's an EU weight with a driver, yeah, with a driver. So actually, the the the, the, the curb weight that we use, and most people use the DIN curb weight, is probably going to be thirteen thirty. Uh, which would probably be a dry weight of about twelve forty or so. So, it is lighter than the came. But sorry, the point is, is people don't buy cars like that because they like. I'm afraid we will we'll love to think that they did, mm-hmm. and they're all terrible purists and and you know, like us, and that's why they buy. That's not. They buy these cars because they like the name, they like the look, um, they like the image, but also because it fits in their life. Because mm-hmm. you know, the, all the functionality is there. It's proper quality. It doesn't go wrong. And these are all the things. These are all the areas in which Lotus have tripped up in the past um, yeah. and you know that was exactly what the Evora did it looked great on paper and then you went up and you couldn't even get in the car and the interior was a joke yeah. frankly um, and um, yeah well we, you know, we just have to hope that with Geely's money um, and with the example that you know Volvo has set with totally transformed their business um, that you know the list will go the same way and that for the first time there really is a genuine alternative to you know a Porsche from Lotus yeah it's it's an exciting car um it's a little way off actually they've, yeah. they've still got a lot of development work to do yeah. it's all been delayed by um well covid yeah. it means that they have both the Avaya the electric hypercar and the Amira to to finish off and get into production at the same time they yeah. were hoping to be able to stagger them but they're overlapping quite a lot yeah um we, I think we'll be driving a prototype around the end of summer, maybe autumn. Yeah. But we won't be driving a finished car until spring. Yeah. So a little way off, um, but lots to feel optimistic about that. Yeah, but in the context of having waited, whatever it is, 27 years. So <laughs> a few more months. We can yeah, a few with. more months isn't going to kill anyone. Uh, and, and do you know what? As far as I'm concerned, delay it as long as you like. But it has to be right mm. when it comes out. Because 
if those mm. first early cars, they are so important, aren't they? Those first early cars, if, you know, if, you know, some important telly person breaks down at the side of the road, okay. it's all it takes, isn't it? Mm. And if it was a Porsche, they probably wouldn't make, even mention it. But because these things are so, you know, I've said this about the, well, who knows where TVR is at the moment, but I've said this about, you know, TVR, that if they ever come back, you know, the quality has to be mm. absolutely spot on because, you know, otherwise you're setting yourself up for a fall. So as far as I'm concerned, just, Bring it out when it's ready. Yeah. And not a minute before. That's right. Um, okay. So we both sp- uh, sat down and spoke with plenty of people during Good yeah. Week. We drove a few cars. Yeah. Um, yeah. A big car that we've been looking forward to driving for a while is the new 911 GT3 Touring yep. or GT3 with Touring package. Yes. Uh, we were slightly concerned, weren't we? Because the new GT3 has, the spring rates have really ramped up on the front axle at that least. Doubled. Um which is a huge increase. Mm. We were hoping that the GT the, the GT3 Touring might be wound back a little bit. Yeah, we've driven the car. It isn't. No evidence of it. Mm. Um, and I've spoken to Porsche people. I haven't spoken to um, Andy Preuninger or anybody at Porsche Germany about this, but um, certainly there are no communications to that effect. Um, and the people in the Porsche press office say they are unaware of any um, mechanical changes to the specification of the car. Um, and we both went out. Uh, I mean, I drove. Uh, I drove one up the hill. Um, it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it was wet, so I just sort of skidded about um, and had a laugh. And um, there's so much about that car I love. So much about that car. But <laughs> it seems silly to be critical of a car, which you know, if I were writing a DN review, I'd probably still give nine out of ten to. But I think on this specific point, I think they have missed a trick. You know, I drove it down, you know, really, I drove it quite fast down quite a challenging road. And although it was fast and it felt incredibly connected, um, it just felt, it, it just to me, it just felt exactly like the, um, the standard GT3 had felt. Um, the ride wasn't great. And there were times, there were certain undulations in the road where the car was starting to move about it. It was starting to be deflected because it didn't have... Um, the sort of the bandwidth to be able to absorb that frequency of, um, of undulation or whatever. Um, and yeah, I just thought if it was just, you know, so they double the front spring rate. If you, if you even came back 20, 30%, mm. just gave it a little bit more. And it may be that this is a thing that's peculiar to UK roads. That's I right. don't know. Yeah. Um, UK roads are always the toughest test of these cars. Uh, and it may be that uh, on German roads or around the Nürburgring or any of the other places they go with these cars, then, the, then it behaves fine. But, yeah, I mean, given it's a touring, given that car's role in life, you know, and I always thought that that spring rate had been put on the car because it needed to support the big increase in downforce that it generates. Um, and therefore, you remove the rings, you remove the downforce, you remove the need to have um, that spring rate on the car. But as yet, um, they've not knocked it back. Um, so, fabulous car. Um, silly thing. there's nothing I would rather have for that money that's still true isn't it it is still true there mm. really is nothing I would rather have for the money but at the same time you know we have to call it as we see it and I see it that um, that car could be even better than it is mm. um, if they just made it a little bit more um, road friendly yeah I think I agree I've driven it as well um, it seems a pity doesn't it because otherwise it's actually mechanically identical yeah. to the regular GT3 Correct. just without a wing just a, a, a styling exercise really and it looks I think it looks really good mm, it looks fantastic yeah I mean I 
because I'm because I'm not a huge fan of downforce on road cars anyway. If I had, if I was going to buy a GT3 Touring, I would probably have it without the wing mm. because I just, I just like, I just love the um, the stuff, particularly the ones in the really subtle colours, sort of gentian blue one with the mm. black interior. Mm. Um, I take the badges off it. Yeah. And because it can all, a, a, to the untrained eye, silver wheels. To the untrained eye, it's a 911. It's a 911. It's not that special. Yeah. which I love. And I love that. I absolutely mm. love that. Um, then again, if I was going to have one with the wing, I'd probably be a different sort of person. But then I'd probably want to go a completely different direction and go, "Hey, look at me!" But uh, no. I mean, so if I was going to buy a GT3, I would buy a Touring. Um, but <laughs> I bet you someone, I bet you someone, um, you know, I don't know, Litchfield or someone like that will go and do yeah. um, a spring pack on it mm. and it'll be very very mm. interesting to see it will what it would be like to It'd be very interesting the two together also to quiz Proininger or, or someone from his team find out what their yeah. their, their thinking was yeah um, they, it, it might well be as you said specific to UK roads um, lots of the, the German and French and Spanish roads are marble smooth aren't they yeah, yeah. and it's probably sublime on those yeah maybe slightly compromised on ours um, okay well you've driven another quite sort of hardcore uh, performance car for 60 seconds so we'll keep this brief the yes. Alfa Romeo Giulia GTAM it took me this is, this, this is what happens at Goodwood when uh, someone bins it on the hill in front of you so it took me two and three quarter hours to drive a car in anger for less than a minute yeah um, but you know that's the way that it goes and you can't you know you're not going to complain about these things because you know ultimately you're just getting a, you know, an amazing car up the hill so yes this is the Alfa Romeo GTAM Hundred and fifty-seven thousand pounds, and the M is the the more sort of track focused on. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's got the, it's got a big aero pack on it. Uh, mm. No rear, um, no rear seats. Four door car, no rear seats. Go figure. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so that is the the, 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 the track oriented car. Um, and I guess with all these sorts of things, when you do have such a short period of time in the car, you're always left wanting more. Um, I really liked it. I really like, well, no, I really like most of it. Um, engine is fantastic. You know, they, mm. pro- you know, they have proven that a, uh, a twin turbo V6 powertrain mm. can sound amazing. Yeah, so does. McLaren, Ferrari, you have no excuses. Yeah. Um, although they've got a different V angle. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Not that like, again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does sound amazing. Um, and there's very little lag because it's, it's got 540 horsepower. And it's, you know, it's quite light. It's... I'm not sure how they calculate it though. I'm always mm. suspicious of weight figures now, but it's yeah. 1540 kilos, but I'm not sure what kind of kilos they are. Mm. Um, <laughs> and it's really poised. It's beautifully balanced. The only, I made a mistake because I stuck it in race mode. Mm. Okay. Um, and up towards the top of the hill, it, does, it gets quite bumpy. And it was, you know, having reasonable experience of driving up that hill I was surprised by how much it was jumping around uh, and maybe I would give it the benefit of the doubt on that because I think maybe if I'd just gone up in sport or whatever, whatever the next one but down is called um, that might have sorted that out but I still and I've got this problem with you know the standard quadrifoglio um, and I know that I'm a small minority of people because I know that car's had an amazing reception and people love it and you know and that's fine so I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong but the steering on those cars is just too aggressive for me. And it's sharp, isn't it? It's sharp. It's mm. too light, and you get too much um, build up the moment you come off center. It just sort of and I know mm. that they do this to make cars feel sporting. But you know, the cars that we admire most for the way that they handle. So I'm thinking of Lotuses, McLarens, and Porsches. Um, 
They don't, none of them do that. Mm. They all have this beautifully, quite slow, very linear steering. Measured. Measured. Because then you always know where you are. And, you know, you know exactly what kind of output you'll get from any given input. Um, so, you know, that's my pint-sized, less than a minute review of the <laughs> Alpha GTAM. But uh, I think they are trying to keep a car. Uh, and I am on the promise. Um, yeah. And I just, I, I just, I just want to go and spend a day up in the mountains with it, just to try and understand it a bit better. Mm. Um, and, you know, and however funny I think the GTAM is, I mean, I think if you've got, unless you're a collector, and I'm not even sure that they will be collectors, although there will only be 500 of them, so maybe they will. But I suspect that a GTA is probably a much better bet because it's the same powertrain. I think it's the same suspension too. Mm. But you can actually put some people in the back. Those rear doors actually do something. Yeah, they're worth opening. Yeah. Good. Well, we'll come back to that once you've spent a bit more time in it. I think I've been um, told I'll get in the car at some point as well. Great. Which I'm looking forward to. Um, so the first thing that I did when I got to Goodwood on the Thursday morning was go to the Lotus stand. Yeah. Uh, put on a race suit and a helmet, and I jumped in a prototype Evia, that's yeah. the electric hypercar that's on its way, yeah. with Gav Kershaw driving. Yeah. Um, I know you know Gav. He's a, it's the first time I've really spent any time with him. Oh, he's top lad. He's a great lad, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It's good fun just to hang out with for a bit. Yeah, I've known him for yeah, hmm. yeah. 20 years. Yeah. He's, he's one of these former, well, he's a Lotus lifer, actually, isn't he? Um, who learnt from the very best. Yeah, and he's an incredibly skillful driver, and just knows what it takes to set up a car. Yeah, to to ride beautifully, to handle, to steer, um, and so he's just a fun guy to talk to. And as you know, when you do one of these rides up the hill, you're sat next to the bloke for quite a long time. Yes, waiting. The, the ride is less than a minute. Well, in your case, I imagine a lot less yeah. than a minute. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to that. Okay, um, but you're with the bloke for two hours, so yeah. you, you learn a lot. Yeah. And this, this was a real prototype, this car, so it barely had an interior. Yeah, no, I actually sat in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and it, your feet it, it, are high, But didn't you think they? it looked really cool with, with none of the gubbins on it? It did look cool, yeah. Looked, I thought, I'd have one like that. Yeah, it, yeah, that's true. It did look cool. Um, it was in the wrong mode. Ah. <laughs> I think Gav was a bit embarrassed about this, but... When you say it was in the wrong mode, how can it... What, what, what was it in? It was, it was in a valet mode. So when he launched it off the line, oh, yes. I thought... That's not impressive. It doesn't feel any quicker than my car. <laughs> and he immediately said... Was he ah. frantically stabbing buttons? And go- well, he wasn't. I think he was concentrating. The thing is, because it's a prototype, it didn't have the normal buttons. So right. it had one of those you know, rotating dials. And it, it was marked with four positions. And he had it turned all the way around. Yeah. What he hadn't realised at that point was that there was a, a, a secret gav mode that was unmarked. And if you just twisted it a little bit further, you got full power. Um, so it was stuck in some very cautious valet style mode and so it didn't feel quick um, but even so through you know the, the, through the corners it felt from where I was really sweetly balanced you could there, there felt like a lotus ride in there yeah it felt quite supple and fluid um, when we got to the top he realized his mistake and on the way down a little bit naughty you're supposed to just yeah. drive processionally down um, he found the secret gav mode and gave it a few squirts and then you feel the performance yeah. and inevitably it's, it feels really strong yeah. um, so it was, it was very interesting to spend a bit of time with that car and talk to Gav about it um, what was perhaps more interesting still was that the following day I went up the hill as a passenger in the Rimac the Nevera yeah. uh, electric hypercar it's direct rival 
Um, and so it, it was interesting to get that perspective comparing these two cars back to back from the passenger seat. We know there's only so much you can learn, um, but it was yeah. it was interesting nonetheless. The the Rimac it was it was also a prototype, but very very representative of a customer car. Beautifully finished interior. Yeah. Um, the first Rimac, the Concept One, it's a tiny little thing. You wouldn't stand a chance of fitting height wise. Yeah. I I didn't really fit. Yeah. I had to sit awkwardly in the seat just to get my head in. This one is much much better. Um, so even with a helmet on, you're all right. Nice. Absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah. No stress at all. And it's got those sort of butterfly doors, gullwing doors, or yeah. butterfly doors, I suppose, with a big cutout from the roof. So when you drop yourself in, you've just got this huge aperture to climb yeah. in through. So, yeah, in, in those regards, it's, it was an impressive thing. Um, he, the, the test driver is a guy called Miro, who I've known for years. He's a good yeah. lad, a good driver. Um, and he, he had it in drift mode just for the just to get off the line because he just wanted to roast the rear tyres yeah. and get a little bit of warmth into them and also show off for the cameras, obviously. And then before the first corners, he just flicked it into whatever, track mode or sport mode or something. Yeah. And again, it felt, um, it felt well balanced. It, you know, when, it's, when it sort of stepped out a little bit on a slightly slippery surface, it, it appeared to do so in a progressive and predictable yeah. way. It's always difficult though, isn't it, with a pro yeah, driving yeah, exactly. car. Yeah, 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 how much he's out. controlling it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, it had a quite a nice supple ride over the few bumps that you find up that hill. Um, what, I mean, perhaps there's no chance of ever being able to, to tell it, but I couldn't identify the extra half tonne from the passenger seat in the no. Rimac over the Lotus. Because those two companies have taken very different approaches yeah, they have. with the battery packs. So Lotus... It uses a 75, or it's around that, something like a 75 kilowatt hour battery. The Rimac has got a 120 kilowatt hour battery, which and is that must be the enormous. biggest battery that's in anything, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. is that is enormous. You think that a Taycan Turbo S is what 95? Mm. Yeah, so it's a big old lump. Yeah, it is about 500 kilos heavier. Yeah. maybe it's 400 and something. I bet you'd feel it if you drove them both. You'd have to probably. Yeah, you probably you, would. You can't. I mean, that's a caterer. It's an entire caterer. It's a lot. Yeah, you're not going to disguise that. And, and so it's interesting that, and, and they both, both companies back their positions, of course they would. Yeah. Lotus says, you know, these cars are actually only going to be fun to drive the way a Lotus should be if you keep them as light as possible. And yeah. to do that with an electric car, you have to limit the size of the battery yeah. and therefore hope that the charge network improves Which very it quickly. It will. Uh, Rimac says, actually our customers want to be able to use these cars. Range is really important. Yeah. The charge network isn't there yet. Um, and of course, the thing with this is, is they're not. It's not necessarily the case that one of them's right, the other mm. one is wrong. It, it, I suspect it is the case that um, you know, a Rimac customer is going to want to go and do distances, cruise across Europe in their car, whereas a Lotus customer does above all want you know a car that is light and drivable and fun, and is going to be much more of a sort of recreational toy than a, a long distance tool. Um, for myself, I am drawn more to the Lotus approach because ultimately it is going to be more fun to drive or I'd be amazed if it wasn't. And I think the, I think the thinking is correct. I think the infrastructure will come to the car. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, and actually, Rimac do talk about their car being a Grand Tour. There you go. Um, and you won't get that from Lotus. No. The, the Lotus cabin is... there is, luggage space in the, in the Rimac? There's a bit, um, yeah, behind the cabin yeah. under a glass hatch. Yeah, I don't it know doesn't what... look like much. I don't know if the Avaya's got 
I wouldn't imagine they've advised that much at all. No. So on paper, they look very similar until you look at the weight. But actually, I think they've probably taken quite yeah. different routes. But for it to work as a grand tour, I mean, this, is, this has been, I banged on about this with the SF90, so I'm not going to do it again. But um, what I don't understand mm. about the SF90 is they created a long distance car that you can't take a long distance because you can't get anything in it. Um, and I think that if you create a car like that um, with that purpose, but then you actually remove one of the fundamental um, things a car like that must have to be able to fulfill that purpose, then you've got a problem on your hands. It's mm. an interesting one. Yeah. Unless uh, at that level people are happy to you know, send their luggage ahead with you know, some bloke in a Range Rover or something. Just before I had my ride in the Rimac, I had a really, really interesting chat with their head of sales. Um, and I wrote a piece about this for uh, the app and for the Instagram site. Um, and he was explaining, let me go back. So people like us will wonder who on earth wants an electric hypercar. Yes. Um, we, we wonder why you'd want all that performance, why you'd want to spend two million quid and not have the theatre and drama of an amazing combustion engine. Yeah. But also the flexibility and usability of a combustion yeah. engine. Um, and it turns out that it's a different group of people entirely. Of course, there's overlap. Um, and of course... Uh, there are some Rimac customers who have had loads of other combustion cars and they will continue to have many. Yeah. Um, but what they've really noticed is that there's a slightly different crowd. Yeah. Um, and the key thing is, to them, that this car is electric is a virtue. They don't see it as, no. a, as a negative in any way. No. To them, it's better yeah. because it's quieter. And they've probably never owned a petrol hypercar. Mm. That's true for a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and so it's just very... So, so they, don't, they don't know or indeed care about what they're missing? No. No. Yeah. And it, this guy, he said that some of them actually dislike the sound, the roar of a, of a noisy engine. And I, just, I thought it was very interesting. You know, these guys are involved in tech. They're a bit younger. They, there, there are lots of important differences with a, a, what you might imagine as a typical supercar or hypercar buyer. Yeah. Things like they were, they were wearing Apple Watch. They don't want an expensive mechanical watch on their wrist. When they go to Rimac, if they bother to do so, they don't want to be wined and dined, and they don't want to talk to sales or marketing people or whoever. They want to talk to software engineers. That's how they get their kicks. They aren't really interested in specking their cars. I think I wrote in the piece they don't understand why the colour of the stitching should be of any consequence. They just... <laughs> I'm with them on that. Well, yeah. And they, they also, they move quickly. They think quickly. You know, and they don't really understand why they can't just send Rimac two million euros in one lump sum and take a car tomorrow. Yeah. They don't. It doesn't make any sense to them that they have to pay in instalments and wait two years for their car. No. So it's it, it appears that despite the overlap, which is there, it's a different crowd. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, that use of the word crowd is interesting, isn't it? The one thing that none of these manufacturers, not Lotus, not Rimac, not Pinafarina, is saying, yeah. is how many they've actually sold. Mm. And to me, as a cynical hack, you just know that if they were selling really well, they would be saying so. You I, just, if they were sold out, whatever, you know, there they would be press releases. They, would, you know, they, mm. wouldn't, they wouldn't pause for a split second between that happening and imparting mm. that information to the general public because why wouldn't you and no one is saying anything mm. so yeah, when you talk about a crowd I want to know how big that crowd is and how many cars we're talking about and whether actually outside that very different very to me very interesting customer that you've just described uh, whether these cars are gaining any kind of traction at all and how that is going to change 
when the kind of cars that the traditional hypercar buyers um, would historically have been interested in just aren't around anymore. Are they just going to abandon that or are they going to take a deep breath and go, okay, fine, I'll buy a 2,000 horsepower electric car? I don't know. We shall see. I did ask Matt Windle, the CEO of Lotus Cars, yeah. if he is confident now that the demand is there for that sort of car. Yeah. Um, and he... I think the all the only bit of insight that he gave was that with regard to sales, they are where they thought they would be. So it's you know it's he's not saying demand has surprised us. He's not you know he's he's not suggesting that they've been amazed by how many people are interested in this thing. No. They are where they thought they would be. Yeah, um, which could mean almost anything. It could mean almost anything. So we'll see. The the other thing that I want to say is. You see these horsepower numbers, 1,900 horsepower, yeah. and you just think, oh my God, it's going to feel unlike anything else on the road. It's going yeah. to be utterly mind-blowing. Yeah. I've never, I've never um, sat in one of these cars because I'd, I've also driven the Concept 1 Rimac and been truly stunned by how quick they are off the line. Um, it's, it's not so much their 0-60 that feels extraordinary, because, I mean, they're very quick. They'll do, what, they're, they're sub two seconds, aren't they? But I maintain that a 911 Turbo S, even on road tyres, feels punchier off the line. It hits harder. Um, I mean, ultimately, it's the, the issue is, you get to a point where the only issue is it's got nothing to do with power, it's just traction, isn't it? That's right. So you're not getting 1,900 horsepower off the line, probably, because <laughs> no, it, no. the car knows it can't put that down. Yeah. So it's, it's from 60 onwards that they feel quick. Yeah. And they just keep going. And the That's rate, the thing. They, don't, they don't stop. The rate of acceleration doesn't diminish. So they, they do feel remarkable. And it's not punctuated with gear no. shifts either. But is it a, is it a pleasant experience? Uh, it's a, I think it's fun to feel it a few times, but not so much as a passenger. No. And I don't know how often you do it. Um, but ah, I don't know. There's so much still to learn about these cars, isn't yeah. there? Uh, we're a long way off. Um, right, final thing to cover before we wrap up this podcast. Yeah. Um, I went up the hill in the Ford Puma hybrid world rally car, the new one, the new M Sport oh, car. Um, so they're, they're switching. For, there's a big regulation change for 2022. Yeah. We've got hybrid uh, powertrains coming in, and Ford is moving from the Fiesta to the Puma. Um, so it's a little SUV now. Yeah. But of course, when it's on the deck as a rally car, it, I mean, it's, it only looks an inch or two higher than a, a conventional rally car. So it's not going to look like you're watching an SUV come down the stage. Um, and yeah, it, it's, technically it's very interesting. The, it's it's a, a standardized um, hybrid system from the supplier, part of the Schaefer group, I think. And it's a sort of sealed, self-contained unit. Um, and it's got an electric motor in there and a sizable battery. I actually thought that it would just be a very small battery They'd harvest a bit of energy under braking, deploy it under power. Yeah. But it's a big enough battery that you can plug it in and charge it um, and drive for something like five kilometers on the road. Yeah. So it's a, it's a substantial thing. The whole unit weighs 100 kilograms. Yeah. And it generates 100 kilowatts of power, which is 70 to 80 horsepower. Um, but you get three-second bursts. Uh, and so next year, the drivers are really going to have to think about how they deploy that extra performance. Yeah. The point being... If you, so you'll generate, you'll recharge the battery under braking, you'll go through the corner, come out, and if you deploy your extra hybrid boost, but then have to lift off or brake, you've wasted it. So they're going to have to be very clever about 
how they deploy this extra bit of power yeah. so that they can maximize it and so they don't have to lift off. And so, probably they're going to have to start putting it in the pace notes. Deploy now. So do you think this is going to change the sort of driver who does well? So the, the sort of, you know, the freehand artists, the guys who are just all natural talent, um, and just uh, are they going to suffer? And the the professors are going to come to the fore. The guys who can just the thinkers. analyze the thinkers. Um, so there's so there's going to be less sort of sideways exuberance and just insane car control, and much more sort of terabits of brain power being deployed to optimize. Because I mean that doesn't strike me as being necessarily for the spectator a a good way to go. Well, do you remember a few years ago, there was a school of thought that said Nico Rosberg would probably be better suited to the new F1 hybrid, turbo hybrid regulations than Lewis yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. The professor versus the freehand artist. Yeah. Didn't turn out that Didn't way. Didn't turn out that way. No. Cream so, always rises to the top. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe the, the most skillful drivers will continue to be exactly that. Um, we shall see. So the, the latest World Rally cars, with that extra hybrid boost, which they're only getting for a few seconds at a time. Yeah. They're producing close to 500 horsepower, yeah. 475 or something. Yeah. That's a bundle, isn't it? That's yeah. Group B style. I mean, I was speaking to Malcolm Wilson, um, and I was saying, you know, you've got cars with a higher COG, you've got cars carrying a load more weight, you've got you know, smaller engines than before. Um, you know, how is their stage time going to compare to last year's cars? Um, and he said, well, we don't know for sure, but I've been out in the stages in testing, and from what I could see... They're going to be quicker. It would be it would be a bit farcical, I think, if the cars were slower as a result of carrying this hybrid system. I think it's it's the old McLaren P1 thing, isn't it? Is that car quicker because it's a hybrid? It has to be, otherwise it's yeah. I mean, the P1 they claimed it was. The target was that it wouldn't make the car slower. I think it probably did ultimately make it a bit quicker. But the one thing they wouldn't tolerate was the hybrid system making it any slower. Mm. So, yeah, probably. And it might do make it a bit quicker. Mm. Um, it, it, it would have to because it has to offset the, uh, the additional mass of the car, the CFG, because of the type of, type of car it is and the fact it's got a smaller engine. So, yeah. And, yeah, and the thing is, is that you know, a modern rally car ain't a slow thing, is it? <laughs> They're staggering. They do look. Uh, and that's what I love about it, because there's real... I, mean, I can remember when ra- rallying was really in the doldrum and they just didn't look that interesting. But mm. these days, they're so fast. They're so they? fast. Um, mm. Malcolm was explaining that they've made some real progress with geometry. And so rather than sliding on the way out of a corner, the cars are actually just pinned straight, yeah. which makes them faster. Probably yeah. less spectacular to, to watch, yeah. sadly. Yeah. It does sound like a pity, but... I don't know. We'll see. Let's give it a go. The, the lad who drove me up the hill is he's a French guy, 26, called Adrian Formeau. Yeah. Um, clearly massively talented. A couple of weeks ago, he set his first fastest stage time on a WRC event on the Safari, which was his second gravel rally in a WRC car. Wow. He started rallying four years ago. Four years ago. He so, was, so he's not some bloke who's been doing it since he was no. in nappies. He was four years into a medical degree. He was going to be a doctor. And he jumped in a rally car one day, yeah. discovered he had this incredible talent, and over the next four years, he's progressed to this level where he's dicing with the very best in the world. One to watch. It's extraordinary. Four years. But uh, Sebastian Loeb started in his early 20s. Sebastian Ogier started in his early 20s. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. That in rallying... You can start at that age, at a point where in F1, you're, you're you might win championships. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And if you tried to go and start a motor racing career at the age of 22, I mean, you would stand no chance whatever. No, no chance whatsoever. No, washed up and over the hill. It's an interesting thing. And of course, what we are seeing in rallying is the likes of Oliver Solberg and um, Cali Rovan Perra, sons of uh, you know yeah. drivers from the 90s and noughties, who, who were like these carters you get in F1 or working through to F1 starting when they're four, five, six years old. So just imagine that when you've got 15 years less experience or whatever it might be when you're getting into the sport. It's, it's, it blows my mind that these guys are able to rise to that level quickly yeah. enough. We'll see, we'll see exactly to what level he does rise, but he's certainly a skillful driver. Um, good. Okay. Well, that's another one uh, wrapped up. Can I, can I just mention two little interviews I did at Goodwood? Go, oh, yeah. You should okay. do. So... Um, these are quite different interviews. Um, the first was with Richard Atwood, first person to win Le Mans for a Porsche, 1970. He, 62 years after he first raced a car, he's still racing. He's racing Formula One BRM at the Revival <laughs> this year. He's in his 80s. He's such a dude. Uh, I've been very lucky to have shared a car with him in a race. Um, and I just sat and sat him down and just said, you know, tell us all the good stories. So it's a very sort of straightforward, but there are, if you want an insight into just how dangerous it was, just mm. how crazy, um, life was as a Formula One racing driver and sports car driver in the, in the sixties and seventies. Um, he, you know, he, he, he's just a, an extraordinary window onto that world. Uh, also because he's a fantastic communicator. The other bloke I sat with, and we'll run this quite soon as well. Um, is Jim Farley, otherwise known as the Chief Executive Officer of the Ford Motor Company. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, if I'd been any kind of decent journalist, I would have sat there and talked to him about um, production numbers and supply chains and factories and profit and loss accounts and that sort of thing. But I just thought, because this is a bloke who races GT40, I thought, we'll just talk about that then. Um, and so we talked about fast cars and fun cars and racing cars. Um, and we only had 20 minutes because, funnily enough, being the CEO of Ford, he's quite a busy boy, but um, it was, it's a really, really good interview. And, and, and if you think that car companies are all just run by faceless bean counters, um, he's there to prove otherwise. Mm, proper enthusiast, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. The CEO of Ford on the intercooler. On the intercooler. <laughs> that makes you proud, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's, it's just strange, but um, you know, lucky to be able to do it. Excellent. Okay, well, that will be up on the app very soon. Yeah. Um, go and check out the app. Go and download it. Start your free trial. Just search the intercooler on the App Store. You'll find it there. And we'll be, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. All the best. Mom deserves the best. And there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.